happened to call you out in public and make but I forgot to make it up. Alright. So last time we talked about chapter fifteen. And talking about that chapter reminds me of there's a story that Richard Ruman tells where there was this monk who was interviewed by this TV reporter. And he's part of this order that never talks other than to confess their sins and to sing songs. And so this reporter had asked him, well, what if it turns out atheism is true? What if all of this was a waste? So would it have been worth it? And the monk thinks about it for a second. He says, holiness, sacrifice, and silence are beautiful in and of themselves. I would have used my life well. Paul completely disagrees in 1 Corinthians 15. Because he says, if, this, if for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied. And you might ask the question, well, why did Paul, why would Paul disagree with this monk? And I think the answer would be that Paul lived his life in such a way that he really would have been a fool if he was wrong. In 2 Corinthians, he talks about how he said five times he has received 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once a stoning, three times a shipwreck. He goes on and he says that he has been in dangers from rivers, and dangers from robbers, and dangers from my own countrymen, and dangers from Gentiles, and dangers from cities, and danger in the wilderness, and dangers at sea, and danger from false brethren. In other words, he was willing to put it all out there for risk, where that if he was wrong, then he really was a fool. And I say that because if you actually look at the data, I'm a former biotech engineer, and if you look at the data on Religion. The, funny, the fun fact is that people who are religious tend to live longer, better lives, which is kind of ironic for atheists who think this is the only life and they don't get as much of it. And so there's a tendency to think, well, maybe you know, the psychological and the health and relational benefits are worth it such that if we're wrong, then you know, it's, it's no big deal. But that wasn't true for Paul, right? because he gave 100%. And so I think, there's, I think there's something to be said there. So we're gonna, what we're going to do today is that there's several, I'm just going to cover a bunch of chunks or topics that we didn't have time to cover in 1 Corinthians. The, I picked these because they were things that either somebody had asked me about or we had conversations after class that I thought would be worth discussing further. So it'll be kind of a bunch of places across 1 Corinthians that we'll, try to, we'll talk about. So we'll do that. And we're going to start. Jamie's going to lead us in prayer. In chapter 6, there's a question in the study guide. It says, what does it mean that the saints will judge the world and angels? And how would this fit into Paul's arguments? Okay, so if you go back into that, remember chapters 5, 6, and 7. Paul is criticizing them because in chapter 5, you have the man who had his father's wife, which was illegal under Roman law. And they didn't judge him. So even, even the world would have said that was wrong, and they let that go. And then in chapter 6, he talks about how they, were, they didn't bother to deal with that problem. 
even the law would have, but they did bother to deal with trivial lawsuits. As he's like, this, is, this makes no sense. And then he says, that's what he says, don't you know you're going to judge the angels? And you're like, yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, we all know we're going to judge angels, right? You know, what, what does that mean? Okay, there's a book. I'm curious if how many of you have read Dr. Heiser, Michael Heiser's book called The Unseen Realm? If you raise your hand. So there's a, yeah, a handful, maybe five or six. Okay. If you actually read that book, it's a, it's a really strange book, but it actually makes a lot of sense. If you understand that book, then it makes more sense. So I'm going to tr- try to simplify this. I'm going to give you three premises, and then I'll give you a conclusion, and we'll make this verse make more sense. Okay, so the, the first conclusion would be that the sons of God in the Old Testament are, they seem to refer to spiritual beings that are above the angels. And you can see this in a couple places. One of them would be in Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 7. It refers to the sons of God, the Hebrews, B'nai Elohim, that were present at creation. This is before man was created. So that tells you it's like this must not be humans, okay? And Psalm 89, 5 through 7, it makes it clear that these sons of God are not humans because it talks about them being in the angelic assembly. And, and actually, in some translations, New English translation, for example, translates the sons of gods as, quote, heavenly beings. That seems to fit what's going on in context. Okay, so if you think about this, the Old Testament refers sons of God as these divine beings, but they're above angels. So premise two would be that the sons of God, these divine beings, fail to do their job of ruling the nations, and then they're cast down. Psalm 82 would be the best example of that. And it talks about these, these beings these, quote, sons of the Most High, unquote, that's Psalm 82, verse 6, who failed in their job, and he said they will die like men. So they're going to be, they're going to be made so that they're destroyed, right? So that's what he means, die like men. So they're going to be moved down to be like men. And for several reasons, I think it's obvious here in that passage, he isn't referring to humans. Okay, so we have these sons of God that are some divine beings. They fail to do their job. And premise three would be, when you get to the New Testament, you find that people are raised in status, and they're referred to as sons of God. Okay, so uh, Revelations 2, it says, I will give him authority over the nations. So then I see authority over the nations. Remember, this is what the, the sons, these sons of God were supposed to rule over the nations. But now he's talking about people. He says, they will be given this, and he will, or Jesus will shepherd them with an iron rod. Okay, so this is this being transferred to these people. To the, the people who are faithful. First, if you go back to John 1, verse 12, it actually says that believers are given authority, gives authority again, to become children of God. This is this change of status. First John 3, 1, believers are called again children of God. So this, this shows up several places. And so if you put this all together, what it looks like what's happening here is that these divine beings failed in their jobs, and humans who are faithful are going to be put into their position. Now, if you fit this into Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians, then it makes more sense. These divine beings were above angels, and if they're being swapped out for humans, then you would be above angels. And so Paul's reminding them, he's saying, don't you know? This is all going to happen, okay? You're sitting here struggling with these trivial matters, which you have not handled well, when in the end, you're supposed to be handling much less trivial matters in the end. And so that would actually make a lot of sense. Does that make sense, or what you all thoughts about that? Okay, I'm going to say that makes sense. All right, so let's go to, this is a question we, we didn't talk about. So chapter 7, why would Paul distinguish between those that have self-control and those that you don't? 
and 7 verse 9. Shouldn't everybody have self-control? So let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and read that, and you'll see what's going on here. But you see the question, because he, he goes on and he says, well, not everybody has self-control. And you're like, well, shouldn't they all have self-control? So let's try to figure this out. I'm going to actually bounce up to, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Now, with regard to the issues you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of immoralities, each man should have relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital responsibility to his wife, and likewise, a wife to her husband. It is not the wife who has rights to her own body, but the husband. And in the same way, it is not the husband who has rights to his own body, but the wife. Do not deprive each other, except by mutual agreement for a specified time, so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then resume your relationship so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that everyone was as I am. But each has his own gift from God, one this way, another that. To the unmarried widows, I say it is best for them to remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, let them get married. For it is better to marry than to burn with sexual desire. To the married, I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife should not divorce a husband. But if she does, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband should not divorce his wife. Okay, so in context... What does this mean that he's, he implies some have self-control? I mean, is it, shouldn't everybody have self-control? Ryan. See, nobody can trump Jesus, so you just kind of decided it. <laughs> I think it, one of the things about self-control, too, is that in Galatians 5, verse 23, it's one of the fruit of the Spirit. So at some point, it seems like, well, you don't get to opt out of that either, right? Uh, the other thing is there are people in situations where they just they can't get married right, for, for various reasons. Yes? Jesse? You get honed over a lifetime. So even if this is one of those situations where Paul's saying you might as well just get married, this doesn't mean you shouldn't continue to work on that to build more self-control. Yeah, good point. Mike? Well, there also seems to be a contextual reason for the stand as well, right? Verse 26, it talks about this idea of this present distress that they're in. And so even though we don't know exactly what they were going through or what they were going to go through, 
Um, as you start to pile on things on the people, then it's easier for maybe um, humans to, to let some of their inhibitions go. And so the idea here maybe is that based on what is here and what is additionally coming for you, that um, uh, maybe self-control is going to be an issue for you because you're going to be dealing with all these other things as well. And so in that case, then there's the difference. I don't yeah, that's a good point because there's a parts of chapter 7 is when Paul makes a concession where he's like, okay, we got this situation and we're trying to figure out where you have two options that are both fine, you could do, and you're trying to weigh them and figure out what to do. So, yeah, it's a good point. Yes? Well, I just think, so uh, I like it to, um, when we first got married, I told Tony, I said, um, if you bring ice cream in the house, it will be gone. Because um, my self-control is keeping it in the store. It doesn't come in the house, then I don't eat it. But if it comes in the house, it's mine. So, uh, similarly, if if you're a person that has that drive extra, or is very aware of that, then maybe the self-control is being married. If you're not as concerned about that, maybe the self-control is out of marriage. It's not that just are not going to be controlled. It's how you control yourself and working towards being controlled in the way that God has got Yeah, that, I like that. It's like, how you said is how you control yourself is to, you can use your situation when appropriate to help you. I and mean, I think everybody would get that because you shouldn't put yourself in positions where you're going to be compromised and say, well, I'll just have self-control. Well, maybe part of it is just not put yourself in that situation. Yeah, good point. You know, I was talking to Josh, and he mentioned that. I thought this was a good point, too, where the, there was a situation where somebody was engaged to be married, and they were, they were struggling with self-control. And I've heard of situations like that, too. And they talked to a preacher, and the preacher told, me, told them, he said, you know what? Maybe you should just get married, right? If they're going to get married anyways, maybe you could even move the date up. And, and I think that makes a lot of sense. I remember a guy who, he was a preacher, and he didn't grow up in a religious household. And he was dating this woman. They were having sex. And he started to get interested in the Bible. So he's reading the Bible. She came up from a religious household, but then she had lost her faith. He's reading the Bible, he said, he started to actually believe it. And he got to a point, he's like, wait, we're not supposed to be having sex. So he goes to his wife, and he's like, did you know this? And she's like, well, yeah. He said they got married very quickly, and people are like, wow, you got married really young. You know, and he's like, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a reason for that. In his situation, they stopped having sex as soon as he realized that it was wrong. But he also moved up their wedding date because they knew they were going to get married anyways to, to deal with it, which I think fits what you're saying, Katrina. So I think, I think it makes a lot of sense. I was talking to Josh, too, because I said, I, I would think, too, if somebody comes to you and says, you know, we're struggling with self-control here, and the preacher says you should get married, it would also be wise to say, the preacher would say, you probably want to work on self-control because you're still going to need self-control in a marriage. And Josh was like, yeah, knowing that preacher, he said, he probably did, which is probably correct. And I think that fits, too, because, like Mike, you were saying, there's situational is, is part of this. Situation, I think, in here, too, is somebody who can get married. There's people who are sitting there, and they're tossing up two options. This isn't a person who's just struggling with self-control, and then the, it's somebody's Paul's just telling them, well, go find somebody to marry. I think it's a little different. Okay, if you have a situation, Christopher Young in a, in a book said this, and I thought it was really wise. 
He said, if your boyfriend is trying to convince you to get married because he really, really wants to have sex, do not get married to that person. That is not a good situation, right? I think, he's, I think that's a different situation. I think he's onto something there. So I want to I work through a problem. I'm going to give you a, it's a syllogism, which is an argument, like a series of premises that follows to a conclusion, although I don't think the conclusion actually follows. And it comes from a person who claims to be a Christian who says that the Bible supports same-sex marriage. And he uses an argument, and he actually argues effectively on, on this. Well, I don't think he does it effectively, but he argues it on this passage. And I think that his, if you see his part of his argument, you can see it twists this, the way he, Paul understands this argument to, to come to an illogical conclusion. So I'm going to give you the argument, and let's, let's talk through it. There's a... He doesn't break it down into a, a prom- series of premises like this. I'm taking it and translating it over because it's usually obvious, more obvious to see a logical error. Premise one. He says that Paul says that not everyone has self-control and those people should marry. That's okay, premise one. Premise two. Some same-sex attracted people qualify as those who don't have self-control. And then he comes to a conclusion. Therefore, people with same-sex attraction who don't have self-control should get married to another of the, of the same gender. Okay, so what's wrong with this? Yes, Vicki? So that, that's a good point. If you know that the conclusion doesn't follow because of other passages, what you should do is then say, even if this looks sound, I need to work backwards and say, something went wrong. That should be a check on my logic. Or if I misunderstood something, let's say, yeah, good point. Uh, I think, yes, Bob. Oh, it fails drastically on the first premise uh, because the whole conversation is not about uh, who should marry because of overall self-control and, and the two options given okay you have you want a wife that's one option you can live without a wife that's the other option because of the current distress you have to choose between the two nothing's wrong with either choice whereas with the same text there's definitely something wrong with that choice so it doesn't even apply there because of that and uh you know, the self-control is a, it's not a wrong thing in this passage to have less self-control than in one instance than the other. You're not sinning if you don't have this self-control. Whereas you are sinning if you don't have self-control and do something that's totally banned in the Bible. Yeah, good point. This, I think this fits, like Vicky was taking the whole context of all of Scripture, and you're focusing on just on the context in this chapter doesn't logically follow. So we say self-control, it's not an unqualified open, you can just do whatever you want. What if I said, well, I'm going to apply the same logic to, I don't have self-control, I like to steal cars. Well, that <laughs> might make a lot of sense. You know, I mean, so it's, it's not unqualified to your point, right? Yeah. 
Really good point. And I think that, that's the issue with a lot of the, the same-sex marriage debate that's lost, is that some people think it's, it's a definition that the world, get, that the government gets to define. When I don't think that's what happens, is what it's, it doesn't get to define it, it gets to describe it. And the distinction is that when you look out into the world, you notice something that seems to be true. And I think marriage is that, right? You look at just even the way that genders work, it's rooted in nature. The government just doesn't just get to say, this is what it is. It's what it is because of the very nature of the way that it works, right? So it's described, but it is not defined. I don't get to just change the definition. So that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, this is a, it's the argument ad absurdum is where you take an argument and you see, you can show that it's flawed if you can take it to extremes where it's clearly broken. And then you, you work, you should work backwards, kind of like the Vicky was saying, you work backwards in there and try to debug your logic. Yes? Well, he actually does I totally agree, and it's funny, when you, when you force things into a syllogism, that is, you have a series of premises from which a, logic, a conclusion follows, you're forced to sometimes see the logic error. And I had to be very particular to get the conclusion the way they want it to come out, which fits what you're saying here, which notice, you see how that, I had, and this is why that conclusion's kind of wordy. People have sex attraction and don't have self-control should get married to another of the same, same gender. Originally, I had just said they can marry. Look, Listen, a person who has same-sex attraction can get married to a person of the opposite gender. So I had to qualify it to change it, to force it the way they wanted the conclusion to come out. Yes, Josh? Good point. Yeah, th that's a really good point. I had not caught that, that logical that shift there. Yeah, that's the fallacy of equivocation, because we use the same word, but you have it shift meanings to something else, and then it, it's not real clear to people that you've actually shifted meanings. Yeah, good point. You know, and it's funny because even it twists the logic of chapter 7 in a couple ways. Look at verse 11. Paul just said something that doesn't fit this, if, if he means it's unqualified, because he says, well, I'll start in verse 10. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife should not divorce her husband. But if she does, let her remain unmarried. Well, of course, what he should say is, let her remain unmarried as long as she's got the gift of self-control. Then she can do it. You know, if she doesn't have that, she can do whatever you want. Well, that's unqualified, right? He just says she's got to remain unmarried. You know, so that, that's just it. All right.
Any other comments or questions on that? All right, let's go to... So this is one I wanted to talk about because Mitch had mentioned it on the first class. So Paul distinguishes between a concession, a command from the Lord, and a judgment without a command. So what are the differences? What conclusions are we can draw by the fact that Paul actually draws, draws distinctions between these? So let, let me give you some context. I'm going to go ahead and read chapter 7, or parts of chapter 7. I'm going to start in verse 5. So the first part is going to talk about the concession. Do not deprive each other, except by mutual agreement for a specified time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then, resume your relationship, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. So that's a concession. And then he goes on to the, the command, verse, starting in verse 7. I wish that everyone was as I am, but each has his own gift from God, one this way, another that. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is best for them to remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, let them get married, for it is better to marry than to burn with sexual desire. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife should not divorce her husband, but if she does, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband should not divorce her wife. And then I'm going to drop down to verse 25 for when he talks about a judgment without a command. Verse 25. With regard to the question about people who have never married, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my opinion as one who has shown mercy to be trust, mercy by the Lord to be trustworthy. Because of the impending crisis, I think it is best for you to remain as you are. The one bound to a wife should not seek divorce. The one released from a wife should not seek marriage. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face difficult circumstances, and I'm trying to spare you from such a problem. And I say this, brothers and sisters, the time is short. So that then those who have wives should be as those who have none. All right. What are your thoughts about the distinction that Paul draws from this? And what conclusions can we draw from that? I don't think Mitch is even here. He was the one who asked about this. Well, the, the thing is, a, a command is binding. A concession and a judgment without a command, those are basically the same, I'm thinking. Uh, my, in my opinion, you know, this would be better. Uh, you know, I, I can go along with that, but it's not the way that I am doing it for myself, is what Paul is saying. And that, that's an opinion, and, you know, some opinions are to be taken, you know, with a grain of salt, and some opinions are to be taken, you know, seriously. And, and so that's, I think, the difference. If you choose not to follow his concession or his uh, judgment, his opinion, then you're not sinning. It may be more difficult for you, but you're not sinning. But if you violate a command, then that is sin. Yeah, he does seem uncompromising on the command. He just applies it, right? Just like the, the, person, the widow who gets unmarried, he says, or gets divorced from her husband, he says, they should just remain unmarried. Yes? I just appreciate 
You know, I, that was one of the things that when I was thinking about it, I, that struck me, because Paul's an apostle. Like, we take what he says, we'll take even his opinions, a lot of times it's just a command. And Paul doesn't, he, just, he actually sits there and qualifies it, and then I like how he, spe- he brings out his logic. It's kind of like math, you know, you're supposed, to, you're supposed to show your work to show how you drew the conclusion. He spends the time to actually do that, he actually does that a lot in First Corinthians. Josh? Yeah, so... And you're getting the definition, the English definition? I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, because that, and I think that's pretty close to the Greek, because the, it starts, if you look at BDAG, it says permission to do something. So it just says it's permission, so you're kind of in this situation where, you, okay, you, you can kind of go either way, but you got to, there's more to it than that, right, than just, okay, you can, go, you can do whatever you want. It's like, even in cases where you actually do have a couple of options, you need to think about what choices you have, because they, they still have consequences, Jesse. Yeah, you know, and it, it's a good question. And of course, as soon as you get into exactly how the Holy Spirit works and things, it just gets like, I don't know. <laughs> there's parts I know on the, where it's clear and there's a middle ground. And I wonder if part of what the Holy Spirit was trying to do too was trying to show us how someone works through situations where there isn't a specific command. Oh, shoot, Mitch is here, by the way. And so he was just in the back. The, uh, how to work through situations where not everything is called out. Like, there are people, and I'm not making fun, they literally think the Holy Spirit tells them a breakfast cereal to, to, tell, to eat in the morning. They, they, they think the Holy Spirit just tells you absolutely everything to do like that. Well, maybe God doesn't do it quite like that. He expects us to understand the principles and apply good judgment from those principles, and that might be what we're saying here, which means we can apply these principles to a whole set of situations that are not specifically called out. It doesn't mean it's like, well, that situation's not called out. I guess I don't know what to do. I mean, there are people who've said, and I've heard it several times, they say, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Okay, well, 
Jesus also didn't say anything about sex slavery. I don't think he meant that it was okay, right? There are principles that we can apply to those situations. Mitch, and then Misha. So part of the reason that I even asked the question uh, is verse seven, or verse six, he said, by way of concession, not command. Then in verse 10, he says, um, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. Then in verse 12, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is a believer and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. And he goes on. So part of the reason that I asked the question was how do we make sense of what is being said here? In terms of specifically like verse 12, he says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. I guess I didn't totally follow. I'm just trying to make sure I'm clear on the question. Yes. And that what he says below that seems to contradict what I would typically believe Scripture to say about marriage. Okay, because he goes on and says, if the unbeliever wants a divorce, you let them go. Okay, good point. Here's how I've parsed it, and, the, and maybe this is why I can see where you're going. That's a good point. I didn't see, and maybe I'm saying it wrong, I didn't see the logic there to be different in Matthew 19. For example, I don't know if this passage you're thinking, because... When he says, he says they're not bound, the word there is enslaved, I actually think the situation is maybe a little different than we think, where what do you do when the unbeliever just, when you're pressured to say, give up the faith, because I think this is what's going on here, pressured to give up the faith in order to save the marriage. So I think that's the situation. In that case, that's why I think he uses enslaved. Enslaved is never used for marriage, because I, I look through absolutely every case of both the verb and the noun form of dulevo. And so I think he's saying you shouldn't give up the faith. But what do you do when the unbeliever is going to leave? Well, in that situation, when you can't force them. Well, you don't, you don't give up your faith. You let them go. And then, then it fits on, I think, what the rest is what he's saying here. Because then he starts talking about, like, when you first became a Christian, you weren't a slave of men. He uses the word slave again. Saying, it's almost like saying, you didn't ask your spouse whether or not, this is presumably somebody who's an unbeliever who became a Christian and Spouse was an unbeliever. You didn't ask your spouse whether they were okay with you becoming a Christian then, and you don't ask them now. Because it's not, it's not up to them. It's up to you and Christ. So then, I guess that would maybe shift to the way you understand 7 verse 12, because even though Paul's saying, not I, I, not the Lord, he might be actually taking the principles of Matthew 19 and trying to apply to the situation that's not directly relevant. At least, that's how I'm parsing it. Misha. That's fine. Thank <laughs> you. 
Yeah, I think you're right. Because he does. He goes on to talk about how there's just because... And I think this is that he's quoting them here. But says, all things are lawful. Okay, I, I don't think he's actually saying that. I think that's what the Corinthians are quoting. He's, but here's the thing. Not everything that's lawful is actually good to do. Right? This kind of fits what you're saying. And then I think there's even this middle ground. Because I think there's three here. Because he says a judgment without a command. And Mitch, this fits something that he, he and I have talked about this several times. About how there are principles in the Bible that you can apply to a situation where it may actually be a moral situation where you are supposed to do it this way, even though it's not particularly called out. You know, like sex slavery. That is a, I mean, I guess you could maybe try to say, argue that's under... I mean, I, that's not specifically called out, per se. Selling another person into, into slavery. But I think you could make a pretty good argument from Scripture that that one actually would be moral, even if it's not called out, because you're applying a principle that is there. So there's even that other category where even when it's, it may be a moral principle not called out, you may stop to apply it. I think I saw, right, Dave. I'm curious in verse 11, if the parentheses are, or were added by Paul, or if that was part of the command. So it's difficult because Greek doesn't actually have parentheses. So you would have to, so in a certain sense, they would be added by the translator. I'm looking at it. I'm trying to figure out. So mine, it's actually in verse 11. So yours has it in 10? Yours has it in 10. What translation do you have? NIV. And where in verse 10 does it put it? Like, is it from the whole of verse 10? Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm looking at the Greek. I guess I could see where they're going with it. Here's how I think they're doing. And I'm, I mean, I've had about five seconds to look at this, so keep that in mind. If you look at the logic, he does actually seem to break up his sentences because he kind of stops and says something else. Well, not I, but and that almost looks, sounds like a parenthetical. If you actually think about it, even if you just took out the parentheses, it sounds parenthetical. If you just took it out in your English translation and looked at it, it's like he almost takes a step back, makes a qualification, and then comes back. Uh, and then verse 11, but if, and he said that's actually how it starts in the Greek, which shows you a little bit of a shift. So I think they're seeing a little bit of the shifting and then saying, well, in English, we would probably have put parentheses, therefore that's what they're doing here. But So if you just take all that out and just read it in English, I think you could probably infer similar things. Uh, Tony. So beyond what it says here in chapter 7, then he's opened the door up for some consideration to these same three judgments about what is being said in Scripture to everything that he's written. How do you know? Is it just like, because this is the only time he does this specifically, like make the extra effort to point out this is a concession. Like, he doesn't do that anywhere else. Uh, he does make some points like in chapter 11. Uh, but we've got a church of God in such a manner. Like he does in Philemon. But would we have to then assume everything else is a command? Or are there judgments also that he's making about some things in different situations? Like how do we, how do we then tackle that? And that may be too broad to be handle here, but just... Trying to give that consideration for 
everything else that Paul says, do some of these things still be compliant that we know you can say Yeah, it would be, in a certain sense, it would be easier if you had just had this list of rules that you could be easily digested and just execute on. And, and in, instead, you know, we have this thing where this is opinion, where you have two valid things, and this is how I'm parsing it, a judgment without a command, where I think that you take the principles and you can apply them to a principle that, or a situation that's new. It would be a little easier if that was the case, you know, but, and I feel like we kind of make some of those decisions because we know enough about the context of it, like holy kiss. I mean, it says it's a command, but I think we recognize here that that was something in their culture that meant something. So we kind of, maybe it's kind of like a judgment in a certain sense without a command because we understand the principle behind it and then we take that principle. Yeah, and, and the thing about it, we also want to be careful because some people have almost twisted this. You could twist this to two extremes, right? You try to make sure everything that is, is just a list of rules where you don't have to back that off to the principle and figure out how the principle applies to new situations. Or you go and say, well, everything's a principle, and by principle, Jesus just loves. And therefore, and people will then follow the whole bunch of things that actually violate the actual commands. Yes? Um, yeah, I think I will admit it. it's a tricky thing, like trying to decide how to parse out what Paul has written. Um, I do appreciate the point. This is a rare occurrence where Paul ever says anything like this. Most of the time, uh, especially in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, he's regularly reminding them of the authority that he's been given by Jesus to even say any of this. Um, I've had conversations with people that usually it's it's passages like this with the rules of marriage and divorce that we want to ask, and I'm not making judgment about it in here, but past conversations that I've had with others. We want to ask that question here. I rarely ever hear that with 1 Corinthians 13 and the definition of, well, was that a concession or is that actually what love really is? Well, we know Jesus, or Paul had the authority from Jesus to say 1 Corinthians 13. And no one seems to question, um, especially when it comes to the Corinthians, um, second Corinthians especially. He has to keep reminding them, I, I have authority from Jesus to say these things that I'm saying to you. Um, and I would say, uh, of my own opinion, of my own concession, unless otherwise stated, we need to assume that he's not speaking of his own accord. He's speaking of, of what he's been given Throughout First Corinthians, he even says, "As I received from the Lord, I delivered to you." That's not a concession. That's a he's acting as a representative. Yeah, and it, I think you're onto something there too, because it wouldn't make sense for Paul to keep reinforcing his authority if ultimately he was just giving his opinion, like one of the rabbis, right? I mean, you go back to Galatians chapter one, and Paul reinforces it very harshly, he does, strongly, and does not go on and say, well, you know, it's my opinion, you shouldn't get circumcised and go start binding the law. Bob? Yeah, this, uh, there are some things that Jesus didn't specifically address each situation. And I think, for example, like Matthew 19, it's those that are doing something, the action is being wrong, you know, 
do not file for divorce, do not, you know, seek a divorce. That's my action doing something. But in this instance, it's not what I'm doing, but what somebody else is doing. We have responsibility for ourselves, and we can't control everybody else. And, and so, uh, this is a matter of okay, taking principles, do what you can with what you can, but if somebody else does something that's outside of that, you can't control it. Uh, but here's what you need to do pertaining to that. And so that would have just as much weight as if the Lord said it, but he didn't specifically address the situation. But Paul showing us how to use the logic that comes from the words of Jesus and the inspired words of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and kind of add to that, I think that if you if you limit yourself in a certain sense to the commands as opposed to the the principles to new situations, listen to what I just said, you limit yourselves. Yeah, I think it, you you actually limit yourself by saying, I'm just going to follow the commands. I'm not going to take the principles and figure out how I can apply them to new situations. Because you'll find some new situations where you can live out the gospel in a way you hadn't thought of before. Josh? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think about the source here. If Paul, is he... That's a good point, because there was something that Leanne said and we were talking about the Romans class when we got to Romans 14, and she pointed out how Paul actually gives us the answer in Romans 14. So he's trying to work through a situation where, you know, they're, they're struggling with it, but he just gives them the answer, and eventually. But of course, he doesn't just give them the answer. He gives them his flow of logic and then gives them the answer. So now that he's taken that on, off the table, we don't struggle with that one. But I think that that flow of logic is, like you said, of being a wise man, we should... We should not just ignore the fact, but let's just ignore the first half. He gives us the answer at the end and say, but how did he come to his conclusions? And let's think about this as a wise man and think about how we could apply that same methodology to a whole host of other situations. I think somebody else had a microphone. Had their hand raised? No? Nope. Okay. 
All right, we got a minute and a half. I was gonna, we're gonna go through, we're gonna go lightning mode on this one. So this was something that Alan Piner raised. It was a really good point in the, the lesson on singleness. And he brought up what could be argued as a, an argument against the idea that singleness should be held high. And it, it was 1 Timothy, oh, let's skip that one. 1 Timothy 2.15. Okay, so in 1 Timothy 2.15, if you read it, it says that, it sounds like it's saying that women have an advantage if they bear children, which of course would not make sense if Paul just said that singleness is, if you hold high singleness and high esteem. Let me read that passage real quick here. I'm going to start in verse 9. Likewise, women are to dress. Actually, I'm going to bounce down because we're running out of time here. Uh, I'm going I'm to start in verse 13. You'll see why in a second. Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, because she was fully deceived, fell into transgression. But she will be delivered through childbearing if she continues in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Well, how does one get saved through childbearing if you're single? This doesn't make sense. So that could sound like he's saying women should be bearing children. I think what's going on here is that if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, and remember, we just had a reference to Adam and Eve. If you go back to Genesis 3, you realize that he talks about how Eve will eventually bear the seed of woman, right? It's a reference to the Messiah. And I think, so I think what he's saying there, and Eve is kind of symbolic for all women, that womankind, I think he's really talking about womankind, will be saved because through womankind will be the Messiah, okay? So then, you bring that back here, he just said Adam and Eve. He's thinking of that story. So I think that makes a lot of sense. He's thinking of the big picture story here. So is womankind delivered through childbearing? Well, the answer is yes, okay? So he's talking about women and men, because he also talks about men taking the situation that God has given them and then using that situation in a God-ordained way. So that's the best I can do in 90 seconds. I hope that makes sense. If not, ask me after the fact. All right, thanks, y'all.